Welcome to Time to Say Goodbye. It is June 29th. Uh, hopefully we will have this out today again. Yesterday, or last week, we just had a one-day turnaround time, which I think is a record for mm-hmm. us. Usually it takes two <laughs> or three days to get everything in order, but uh, our processing time is getting shorter and shorter and shorter. And maybe one time, you know, like it'll be basically live. Um, but uh, yeah, wow. we are... I'm here with Tammy and Andy, as always. Uh, how are you guys doing? Good. Jealous Tammy's in Seattle. Or Tacoma. Very well. Tacoma. Yes, I've escaped the city, finally. Is there, like, a thing in Tacoma where if you say Seattle, you get offended? <laughs> uh, I think Tacoma now might stand on its own. We used to say Seattle because no one knew where the hell it was. What, what has changed to make Tacoma stand on its own? Because it seems like... A lot of industry is actually leaving there and, you know, a lot of quote unquote hipsters. I think that the people that in the Pacific Northwest would call hipsters are moving in. I think that's why (laughs) gentrification is what I was going to say and displacement. (laughs) Is there is there a lot of gentrification in Tacoma right now? There is. Yeah. And it's the downward pressure from Seattle throughout Uh, the entire region. Is it people who Uh, are the people who go to Seattle for work and come back to Tacoma or they're just doing their own thing in Tacoma? I think so, actually. And then I think, like, probably a substantial kind of, like, creative or engineering yeah. class that can right. work from home. I'm yeah. from... I'm, so it's, in, it's I'm from, like, the opposite of Tacoma, like, same distance north in Everett. And uh, for, right. for fun, I, like, subscribe to the Everett Herald Twitter feed. And I see these news articles about, like, new condos and, like, the light rail yeah. going up there and blows my mind that... Because they're all just Seattle colonies at this point. Yeah, totally. <laughs> I guess instead of expanding east, they're now just expanding north and south. Yeah, I mean. I yeah. think so, yeah, um, along I-5. Because it used to be that it would just go east, and then you would see these like weird castle-like houses. I don't, I remember this from my time as a tree planter, and, and uh, I, I feel like verbal Kent and the usual suspects that tell these rambling anecdotes. But <laughs> when I was a tree planter in Seattle at the age yeah. of 20, uh, I, I would go out to Issaquah and you would see these houses in these subdivisions, maybe on three acre lots. And they would all look like fucking castles. Like they would have gun turrets and shit. (laughs) I was like, who who was building that? Uh, I think all those houses must look horrible now. Cause at this point they're like 25 years old and even, (laughs) even more out of uh, touch with the times. But um, I don't know, maybe inside they're fine. I'm generally pro McMansion. Like I, I feel like, People getting mad at architecture is very. You're pro McMansion. Uh, yeah, it's a hot take. I mean, not. I did pro not Mc... expect you to say that. No, yeah, I don't exactly. think that. McMahon... I I meant aesthet- purely in an aesthetic sense. Really? Oh, like I, I think. Yeah, like I don't. I don't care about architecture, and I think that sneering at McMansions for the aesthetics of it is stupid because it distracts from all the other reasons why they're bad. I think that we should talk about our first topic today, which is, you know, I I. I this is something that I think we have discussed a lot, and I think that we have a reason to discuss it a little bit more. And this is this Viet Tan Nguyen, who is a Pulitzer Prize winning novelist. I think he's a professor at USC. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Yeah. Um, what does he teach? I think Asian American Studies, right? Asian American Studies. Okay. Um, and he has, before he was a Right, fiction writer, although I imagine he's always written fiction. He was a professor first. He wrote right, two too. academic monographs and then The mm-hmm. Sympathizer, I think, was his, you know, his big foray into fiction. What, what's a, what is a monograph? A monograph is these academic <laughs> studies that get published by, like, California University Press, and they lose okay. money. Is it, is it different than a book or a Monograph, yeah. No one explains this to you. You just kind of learn it by osmosis later. Monograph meaning it's a specialized study on one topic. Yeah, oh, okay. Right. Okay. Um, anyway, he wrote this article, and uh, I want to read a little bit about it, and I want us to react to it, because I think it's very relevant in a lot of ways, and a lot of people discuss this, and I think that Viet, to his credit, is trying to thread a needle that, you know, might need to be threaded or not need to be threaded. That's, you know, something we can discuss, but um, it's about, uh, it starts out about the uh, Hmong cop who, yeah. in Minneapolis, was standing next to Jer- Derek Chauvin. His name's Tao. Yeah. So. Do you want to give is the it, citation so people can find it? What's the citation? Oh, it's in time. 
Nice. Yeah, you can do it. <laughs> um, <laughs> oh, yeah. It is a, it's a monogram and it's a citation. You can, you can tell which one of us is the academic. <laughs> uh, this is from the piece. The face of two Tao is like mine and not like mine, although the face of George Floyd is like mine and not like mine, too. Racism makes us focus on the differences in our faces rather than our similarities. And in the alchemical, alchemic, alchemy, whatever, uh, experiment of the U.S., <laughs> racial differences mixes with labor exploitation to produce an explosive mix of profit and atrocity. In response to endemic American racism, those of us who have been racially stigmatized cohere around our racial difference. We take what white people hate about us and we convert stigmata into pride, community, and power. So it is that so it is that Tu Tao and I are, quote, Asian Americans because we are both, quote, Asian, which is better than us being uh, Oriental or a gook. If being an Oriental gets us mocked and being a gook can get us killed, being an Asian American might save us. Our strength is in numbers and solidarity across many differences of languages, ethnicity, culture, religion, national ancestry, and more is the basis of being Asian American. But in another reality, Tu Tao is Hmong and I am Vietnamese. He was a police officer and I am a professor. Does our being Asian bring us together across these ethnic and class divides? Does our being Southeast Asian, both of our communities brought here by an American war in our countries, mean we see the world in the same way? Did Tu Tao's experience, uh, did Tu Tao experience the anti-Asian racism that makes us all Asian, whether we want to be or not? Andy, what about you? Do you feel any connection to Tu Tao? <laughs> Um, no, I didn't really either, but I think this is a, I mean, I think what this essay is doing and what the passage you read is doing is raising this question of what is the basis for this? Because, you know, we all use Asian American in a very loose sense, right? Like we are Asian American, but then that raises the question of like, what is the basis of that? Is it because we all, um, share some, you know, fundamental Asianness, some culture, or is it this kind of made up thing? Or, you know, he kind of says in this essay, uh, Nguyen's kind of says in this essay, which is probably kind of controversial, that we're only Asian insofar as white people see us all as all Asian. And, uh, you know, you could say that. that I think that's pretty, <clears throat> opens him up to some criticism, perhaps, that, you know, why should we let um, other people define us? And is that the actual, is that the actual but, basis? Do you, do you disagree with what he said there, that... that white people are what make Asians Asians? I don't know. I don't know if I agree with that. I mean, I mean, on some sense, yes. Like, obviously it is true that, you know, some people might see us in Hmong, Hmong people as the same, or, you know, you or, you or I are the same, even though we're all, you know, come from different parts of Asia. Uh, but I guess that raises the, raise the question of when, 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 when we say we are Asian American, are we simply describing you know, how we're seen by others, or is it how do we, like, go through our life? You know, am I, like, walking through the street thinking, like, I'm Asian-American. I'm, you know, I'm from I'm from the same group as all these other people. <laughs> and uh, I guess we're probably, I, I think we're probably, all of us are saying is, like, we don't actually live our life that way. We don't, um, you know, decide. Yeah. I think some people sure, do. Right. Um, yeah, and I, I, I actually think that the majority of Asian-Americans, quote-unquote, uh, who are upwardly mobile and went to college and are speak English without an accent, for example, and are working professionally are probably do identify in some way as Asian American before, right. you know, in parallel to identifying with whatever country of origin right. they come from. Um, and that's mostly... Do you think they run in parallel? Yeah, I think they run in parallel generally, right? Like, I don't... Like, if um, they saw... Total on the street, they would be like, that's my fellow Asian. Yeah, I think so. Um, and I, I think that to say that most people, like, I, I believe that Tammy doesn't, <laughs> you know, but I think that there's probably, most people do, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's part of the ingrained learning that yeah. you do about yourself. And in that way, I, I sympathize with what Viet is saying, but I also find, and I, he tries to do this here where he says that he is a, police officer and I'm a professor and there's like class divides mm -hmm. here, but I, I don't know. I don't know if he goes into it in a way that feels convincing to me because the thing that struck me the most about, especially when this happened, I was like, oh, well, you know, this guy is part of an immigrant population in Minneapolis that was impoverished for a long period of time. And now they're starting to 
ascend out of, you know, impoverished status. And mm -hmm. that is when people become cops from a purely historical, yeah. <clears throat> you know, class-based analysis when immigrant groups, a lot of them use being police officers as a way to ascend into the middle class, mm -hmm. right? The part that I found more interesting is where he talks not just about Asian American as being defined by white people's perception, but about its origins as a political project. And he seems to be wanting to argue uh, for a return to a more radical yeah. notion of this. Um, you know, that not, not like, you know, I don't think he's going to say that Asian American is some sort of like hard boiled reality or, you know, some sort of irreducible biological thing. But if we can kind of treat it as the political category that it was meant to be and incorporate, you know, revolutionary notions of class into that, then yeah. that's a good thing. Um, or maybe that's just my like more charitable leftist reading of it. It's a time essay, so you know, yeah, it's not yeah. like calling for like bloody revolution. <laughs> yeah. He he does very specifically say that in the essay. So I'll read that part. The, yeah. the legacy of the third world and Asian American movements continues today among Asian American activism and scholars who have long argued that Asian Americans, because of their history of experiencing racism and labor exploitation, offer a radical potential for contesting the worst aspects of American society. But the more than 22 million Asian Americans, over 6% of the American population, have many different national and ethnic origins and uh, ancestries in times of immigration or settlement. As a result, we often have divergent political viewpoints. Today's Asian Americans are being offered two paths, the radical future imagined by the Asian American movement and the consumer model symbolized by drinking boda tea and listening to K-pop. While Asian Americans increasingly trend democratic, we are far from all being radical. The uncharitable interpretation is that this is very much like a, a liberal discourse of what you know, my, my friends would call like racial disparity discourse, which is that the problem with racism is that we don't enjoy the benefits that white people have. So, but if everyone, like if, if we lived in an unequal society, but everyone who was rich and poor was equally white, black, Asian, then that would be okay. That's kind of like the general discourse yeah. of like otherness and disparity. But I yeah. do think the radical potential argument, which Tammy was kind of referring to, is one that I think might have some legs, which is that, you know, let's say all three of us generally have relatively leftist political views and we think that it's more than about identity and being Asian American. <clears throat> but how would we first politicize? It probably was this childhood experience of being racialized and, f and feeling like yeah. whatever the mainstream is, probably like our, our white classmates, treated us differently and that was wrong. And that could, you know, and those really early formative moments, I think, are really important in everyone's political trajectory, right? And I think there is a way in which you could say by being racialized and otherized as a kid could push you on a path to eventually wind up in a sort of uh, more radical, more leftist, more progressive worldview, right? Now, it could also go in the opposite direction of being <clears throat> very conservative and, you know, being obsessed with, like, you know, revenge against white people or something, right? But, um, I, 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 you know, like you're sort of, you know, sort of like conservative t types. But I do, I think that's kind of what he's saying. Not necessarily that you know about these third world movements, which is very specific, but about yeah. the sense of, uh, and this is kind of what I think this is what he's getting at, at the end of the essay. You could use this experience of being an other in America as perhaps the first step, and hopefully this leads you to take further steps to actually realize. The problem isn't just about race. It's actually, you know, capitalism or colonialism and the American war machine, right? And I think there's some legs to that. I, I would say, like, I, you know, I, was, I, wasn't, um, I wasn't politicized in any broader sense until much later. But I always knew as a kid, like, I didn't like being, you know, bullied by all, by all my classmates. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, yeah, I, I think that there is, that pathway is is real in that, you know, what he's describing is a process that generally happens to kids in college, right, where they go to college and they are around a ton of Asian people. And if they didn't grow up in an enclave, um, then this is the first time they're around so many Asian people, especially if they go to like one of the UC schools. And then that culture around those Asian schools really does circulate. It does focus on food <laughs> more than anything else, right? It's like, let's have a potluck. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> Or it used to be, let's do Bible study. 
You know, when I was like, uh, again, this is me like going into anecdote mode, but I remember I spent a summer at UC Berkeley when I was like 21 or something like that. And uh, everywhere I'd walk, there would be some Asian guy, usually Korean, be like, can you, do you would you like to come yeah, to Bible sure. study? And I'd be like, I would like to not go to Bible study. Where did all those guys, people go? They're not Are there sure? anymore. I go to UC Berkeley <laughs> all the time, well, I, you know, before yeah. the pandemic. And I've never once been asked if I wanted to go to uh, yeah. Bible studies. I think th- I think something has changed in the prolesticizing <laughs> of, of that com- <laughs> of that community. But um, you know, you just look older. Oh, that might be a shit. <laughs> that's right. Not the target population. Oh, okay, David. Yeah, that's a much better explanation. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Like, actually, you look forty, and uh, they're not going to ask you to Bible study. You creep. <laughs> Townie. <laughs> yeah. Um, that's, uh, wow. Um, okay. Well, that's all that mystery. Thank you, Tammy. Um, <laughs> well, I just to return to the point about the, the kind of like elite valence of this, like, I also want to credit though, that like, you know, part of like working class organizing and like union organizing community and housing organizing has always been like looking to recent histories, like the sixties and seventies stuff. So I don't think it's just like elites who are learning about third world liberation or like different partnerships between different race groups at that time. Like those are part of like political education materials that have been used in lots of different spaces and continue to be, Um, even for people who don't go to college. Yeah. Okay. So, but there is one distinction I want to make here, which is that I would say that every single person now is writing about third world liberation front in a way that they used to write about another, you know, thing. And I don't know what the thing was before this, but it is the, it is the focus of Asian American studies right now, and it is the focus of a lot of writers like Viet Thanh Nguyen. I even have a section in my book that is coming out next year about the Third <laughs> yes. World Liberation Front, although I draw different conclusions from Viet, which is, and the idea, I think, is that, you know, there is there is this moment of promise, right, with the, where people who are generally third generation, second generation Chinese, American, and Japanese immigrants would come to elite colleges, and they would, they created their own sort of radical societies that were based off of other um, radical societies at the time, like race-based coalition groups at universities. So if you look at the uh, Asian American uh, Political Action Committee, right, like AAPA, if you look at their original statement, it's just copied from the Black Student Organization, Mm -hmm. like word for word, and they changed the Mm -hmm. word. And they they, they said they did that out of a sense of solidarity, Mm -hmm. right? Not just to like, because they were lazy and plagiarizing Mm -hmm. it. Um, but that gives you a sense that, you know, there were people who were trying to build organizations. But the thing that was relevant about that for me was that those are second and third generation Japanese and Chinese Americans. Yeah. Right. And what we're dealing with now are people generally who are recent immigrants. Right. And so and, and they're much wealthier than the than the people who went to UC Berkeley's grandparents were, because that would be around the same immigration timeline. So there's that distinction for me, which I don't think is particularly important. But the thing, the distinction that I do think is important is that the way that these things are always discussed in terms of third world liberation front is in its in the uh, relationship of Asian Americans to, to blackness, mm-hmm. right? Like it's always about hey, some mm-hmm. of them were Panthers, you know, they used to hang right. out with the Panthers. They used to uh, in San Francisco State there was radical solidarity amongst Filipino working class people and the second and third generation <clears throat> Asian Americans who were at Berkeley. Um, right. And that, 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 that was where the pan asian came from. That is an extremely glossy and an idealized way to yeah. think about that history, which is that there were conflicts between the second and third generation Chinese Americans who were at, you know, like the, the universities that this thing sprung up in at the early times were UC Berkeley, right. San Francisco state, which is was mostly Filipino students, but then the other places like University of Michigan, Columbia, Brown, Yale, you know, like places that are elite schools. And uh, there were conflicts at the time between that were along class lines. Those have all been thrown out, mm-hmm. right? Like there's this idea that that there is, and, the, and there are also conflicts with like the Panthers. So like the reason why the AAPA thing started was because a lot of the people at Berkeley tried to join the Panthers and they weren't allowed mm-hmm. to join the Panthers, right? So um, this idea that, that, uh, that this was this, coming right. together of everything and that the problems that we have today weren't present there and that if we could only embrace this mindset, all those problems would go away, I think is historically mm-hmm. inaccurate. But the other thing that, and this is the important thing, is that um, I think that the work that they did that was relevant and important was not necessarily the relationship with with 
race and other races, but was, you know, the stuff like they did at the International Hotel, which Viet doesn't yeah. mention at all. So the International Hotel was this place where in San Francisco in the downtown area where uh, indigent, elderly, Filipino, mostly men worked and they used to be merchant marines or work work on the shipyards and then they age out and then they don't have anywhere to live. So they live at the International Hotel. And that was being that had been purchased it was going to be turned into a parking lot um, because San Francisco's downtown was expanding into Chinatown. One of the things that Third World Liberation Front did is that they partnered with Filipino American groups, student groups, and they tried to go in and they did like a seven year fight to save the International Hotel. And that's where, you know, like that, that part always seems missing to me from these types of analyses, which is where people cast off their class privileges, they go into an actual space. And then they try and organize the people within that space. And then within that space, you have like what Tammy calls like struggle moments, right? Like where uh, <laughs> shared struggle will lead to better ideas and a better analysis of what the problem is. I don't know. Like I, I didn't, I was waiting for that moment. But the thing that's always discussed in terms of third world liberation is just like a pure race relations type of thing. And I wonder mm-hmm. if that part is limiting. It's interesting because he ends the essay in a kind of um, ambiguous way by talking about the end of Asian America, uh, which I think what he means is, you know, as he begins the essay, Asian America for him only exists insofar as like white people are racist and are and group a- Asian people together. So I guess he's saying the end of Asian America would be um, the end of racism or the end of, you know, people grouping them together. I don't know. I think, you know, I, I, I understand your sort of objection that he's not being specific about concrete events like the International Hotel. Uh, I do think that he's gesturing um, in a direction that I'm okay with, which is to say that, you know, underlying Asianness, there are these bigger forces, which he calls, you know, capitalism, racism, and war. And, you know, you could argue that he doesn't, like, put them in the right order or he doesn't, like, spell out how all of this stuff works. But um, I, th- I think by the end, I'm kind of heartened by his gesture of saying we have to move beyond Asian American-ness yeah. as the sort of fixed yeah. identity, right? Yeah, Tammy, what, what, what did you think? Yeah, I think I would broadly agree with that. And I think I was pleased that deeper into the essay, he got into issues of war and colonialism much more. Yep. I mean, obviously, that was why his family was here. But, you know, he like there, I think there's a line where I've printed mine out because I'm old. So <laughs> yeah, I can't I'm read like, online. I mean, if, I print out of, everything. Because the listeners can't <laughs> see this. Tammy is like, <laughs> it looks like she's like, uh, look at your seventh grade world history homework right now. Like, <laughs> like a print out about the defenestration of Prague or something. She's, she's highlighted it all down. <laughs> <laughs> I've used colored pencil here. Um. But yeah, you know, at one point he's like, the problem is race and class and war, a country almost always at war overseas that then pits its poor of all races and exploited minorities against each other. So, you know, I think I think that's good. I, you know, I'm I'm sensitive to where this was published, right? Because yeah. it's not like it's pretty. Decent, I mean, it's pretty so. radical. For, I don't. I haven't read Time <laughs> magazine in twenty years. It might be like teenage yeah. now, where it's printing. Crazy leftist pieces. It's not as radical as Steve Vogue. But uh, yeah, this is pretty, uh, this is pretty, um, you know, abstract at the time. Okay, that's a a natural follow-up question. It's like, do you think that the center of Asian American, uh, you know, of of Asian American broadcasting out in the world through intellectuals and through media figures, right? Do you think that's moved left in the last few years? Because it used to not be this. I, and I agree with you guys on yeah. that. Absolutely. It used to be like Katy Perry wore a fucking kimono <laughs> and I'm pissed off about it. Yeah, I'm serious. And it used to be like Scarlett Johansson is doing yeah. all these roles yeah. and this is why it matters. It used to be that Barry, we- you know, very recently it used to be like Barry Weiss tweeted that, you know, immigrants would get the job done. And here's the- here's everything that we know about the perpetual yeah. foreigner thing. Right. That's like a that's like six fucking <laughs> yeah, months ago, yeah. you know, or like a year ago. Well, we had the Allison briefing it, yesterday, like, but that I think we might think that's a CIA, CIA psyop. All these, all these animated <laughs> voice actors now trying to co-op BLM. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I I agree with that. It's a psyop that uh, they're trying to make the most ridiculous thing possible to discredit the movement. The um, I, I, is this is this evidence, right, that, and I don't even know if Viet would have written this, but I don't know him well enough to know whether yeah. he would have or not. I imagine that he felt this way for a long way, you know, to give him as much credit yeah. as possible in this, which is that 
Like, do you think that the that the center of the Asian American movement then has moved to the left in the past year? Is this evidence of that? Last year or last month? Um, I think. Yeah, because it it really used to just be representation politics and Jeff Yang writing <laughs> the same shit over and over again, right? I like, think readers like, are gonna have a like, bingo card by the end of this, and just wait for you to talk about Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Listeners, sorry, listeners, um, not readers. Yeah, but, but it, it, are are we further to the left now? Like, are we? Is is this all? Is this a sign of progress? Uh, I don't. I I personally wouldn't go that far because I think the Hollywood Asian sure. stuff persists and will. You know, it's still the predominant like mass culture vehicle for our identity category, but. I think Black Lives, the Black Lives Matter uprising has just opened up space to talk about stuff. And, you know, I think like Latinos and Asians and Native people are also putting out their own kind of thinking about their racial category because we're all doing yeah. so much introspection think, right now. So, sorry, I mean, you know, you know, not to overlook what Viet himself is saying, that he was a Vietnamese refugee. He's not the Taiwanese. And just, like, I don't know what Jeff Ng's background is. I assume his like parents yeah. were professionals of some sort and he is a professional of some sort. Yeah. He went to St. Anne's Harvard, <laughs> okay. but yeah. You just have a CV in front of you. Um, yeah. whereas <laughs> all, I can write on everything. Go ahead. Um, but yeah, like the crazy rich Asian Asians are Taiwanese American and they probably came from, you know, I'll talk about my own people. Like they're probably all doctors, engineers, um, you know, very, Prepare to go to like, you know, good colleges and good grad schools. That's and Viet Nguyen, who eventually does rise up and um, is in a very in a prestigious position, saw the underside of all of all that at first. So he probably Yeah, for he's sure. probably much better equipped to for talk sure. about this than uh, John Chu, right? The guy who made crazy rich Asians. No, I totally agree. Yeah. Yeah. I mean like there's no <laughs> I mean like Viet Nguyen, like there's no question grew up, you know, in a, his parents owned a shop, you know, in an area that seems to be pretty hostile towards Vietnamese shops at the time. And he's a refugee. And um, I do think he's more prepared to talk about this stuff. I do think he's, he is going to resonate more with people. And I do think that he, uh, that his actual current class status as being like a, you know, professor who won a Pulitzer prize for a novel is actually quite irrelevant. (laughs) You know, like if, if we want to point that out, then we're really carping about something, you know, like, I don't think that that necessarily matters because I don't think it was formative to these ideas in, in a very significant way. Now, you can make an argument that wealthy immigrants shouldn't be the ones that discuss these issues, and I would be very sympathetic to that, but I would say that Viet Thanh Nguyen is not a wealthy immigrant. You know, like, he's not somebody who came over here on a skilled worker yeah. visa. And so in that way, I do think it's more uh, more powerful. But, you know, like, the, the thing that that... that that I couldn't quite grasp in this, which was that, is it worth saving this category mm-hmm. yeah. at all? You know, like, is it worth even discussing this in this sort yeah. of way? Or are the, every time you bring it up, is it always going to be funneled into the right. same result, right? Like we can make gestural, like gestures towards third world liberation front, but what are we actually talking about, right? Are we still just going to be talking about Hollywood representation while saying, Third world, the words third world liberation front. That's yeah. a question that I have. Mm-hmm. And I don't know the answer to that, but my cynicism about this would be that that is exactly what's going to happen, yeah. right? That if we try and thread this needle, that we're going to end up in the same space yeah. every single time because we've tried to thread this needle yeah. before, right? And we always end up at the same place. And um, I, I thought what you were going to say this, this that jumped out at me was the first half of the essay does the sort of greatest hits of Chinese Exclusion Act internment. Vincent Chin, again, assuming that these are all the same people when, you know, I don't want to like abandon all this stuff, but as a thought experiment, like I think it's worth asking, like what does actually connect all these people? Is this a coherent thing called Asian American or was it invented retroactively yeah. by the late, tw- in the late 20th century when there was enough people to form Asian American studies departments and they needed to invent a history for themselves? Um, and, uh, you know, that's worth, I mean, that's <laughs> worth asking, right? Like, these yeah. people, them, these yeah, people themselves, yeah. just like any nation or group, right? These people themselves, as they were experiencing it, were not like, this is some real like fucked up Asian American shit right now. They're just like, no, we're, <laughs> there's like, we, pe- we as like, Chinese workers are being excluded. They weren't like, how is this going to resonate, you know, for the future generations of Korean Americans, you know? No, what I, I mean, Andy's comment like reminded me that when I was very young, my mom, who, 
you know, is not an intellectual, didn't come here with college education or anything like, but was always like learning and trying to teach me stuff. You know, I think for her, she saw Asian Americanness as a kind of like George Washington type thing that was relevant to us. You know, so in other words, it was a mythology that made some sort of sense and was a kind of like assimilationist or acculturationist vehicle. So, you know, she took me to this lecture by the Asian American historian Ronald Takaki that was given at the University of Puget Sound. I remember this very clearly. And, you know, I think that was her way of kind of saying to me, like, you have some sort of connection to this country and a history in this country. You know, and, that, and so I think that's kind of interesting that, you know, it's it's like mythical doesn't necessarily like mean anything. It is retroactive as well, but yeah. it is a thing. The the thing that I want to talk a little bit about today in terms of race essentialism, because, uh, right, like we agree that a lot of the stuff about Asian representation politics, all this sort of stuff did dabble in a lot of race essentialism, I think. Right. Like it's the idea that if crazy rich Asians happens and like Cambodian kids in East Oakland feel better about themselves, which might be true or might not be true. I doubt that that's particularly true, you know, um, that, uh, and because it seems like some of the ways that people are trying to cleave this moment that we're in or trying to analyze it is through, uh, a real confrontation with race essentialism. Mm -hmm. And one thing that I think is happening, which I find to be somewhat concerning and distressing, although totally predictable is that the, conversation is happening through elisions. Like people are not actually talking about the thing they talk about because they feel uncomfortable confronting the thing that they want to actually confront. And so then white fragility becomes this massive balloon pinata that they're all hitting, right? The book white fragility. When in fact, what they're talking about is essentialized identity politics in general. And that a lot of those arguments are made by black authors, they're made by Asian authors, they're made by POC quote unquote authors. And I think because of that, because of that jet grand illusion that like it's probably going to be an unproductive podcast, but that doesn't or an unproductive <laughs> conversation. But that doesn't mean that we can't discuss it here on the podcast. So I, I wanted to uh, read to you something that is from uh, my old professor, Noel Ignatiev, and it's from the introduction to his uh, race trader, the first issue of race trader. Um, And I think it has a lot of relevance to what's happening now, but I also think it has relevance to what we were just discussing, which is, um, this is from it. The key to solving the social problem of our age is to abolish the white race. Until that task is accomplished, there can be no universal reform, and even partial reform will prove elusive because white influence permeates every issue in U.S. society, whether domestic or foreign. Advocating the abolition of the white race is distinct from what is called, quote, anti-racism. The term racism has come to be applied to a variety of attitudes, some of which are mutually incompatible. and has been devalued to mean little more than a tendency to dislike some people for the color of their skin. Moreover, anti-racism admits that the natural existence of races, even while opposing social distinctions among them, the abolitionists maintain, on the contrary, that people were not favored socially because they were white, rather because they I defined, or rather they were defined as white because they were favored. Race itself is a product of social discrimination. So long as the white race exists, all movements against racism are doomed to fail. The existence of the white race depends on the willingness of those assigned to it to place their radical interests above class, gender, or any interests they hold. The deflection of enough of its members to make it unreliable as a determinant of behavior will set off tremors that will lead to its collapse. And then he goes on to talk about John Brown, which, you know, obviously very famously is the guy who led the uh, rebellion at Harper's Ferry and said that that caused a schism in the way that white Southerners and white abolitionists in the North thought about race because he was being a race traitor, right? Like he was leading people into action. Um... Uh, do you see any relevance about to of this passage right now, <laughs> Andy? Like, what's the what? Like, is there like a thing that we're that that can be gleaned from this that feels relevant um, to you? Is white fragility a race traitor? <laughs> well, that's the question, right? <laughs> oh, I see. Um, you're saying that it actually is not. It appears to be. Well, no, no, I'm not saying anything. I'm just saying, like, is is this because like the, some of this language really does overlap with right. with white fragility, yeah. right? Like, is is white fragility the thing that's being like battered around right now, despite also being the number one bestseller? Like, yeah. is is it a is this is it what Ignatiev is calling for right here? 
No, and I think Nadia is doing making the argument that um, we've kind of made several times on this show that racism is not the thing that like racism isn't the motivation motivational force. It's actually the byproduct of these larger social economic forces. Right, the line where he says. Um, um, the abolitionists maintain, on the contrary, that people were not favored socially because they were white. Rather, they were defined as white because they were favored, right? Because the system of slavery and Jim Crow was set up in order to justify it, that's how race gets invented. So race is inextricable from mm-hmm. those larger social and economic forces that make race possible. Um, so I think what he's saying is the only way to for a race traitor to actually be a traitor to the race is not to say... I don't know, not to like read white fragility, but to actually strike at the material um, benefits of a segregated society that affords white people, that, that people, white people are afforded, right? Yeah, and that white people should abandon yeah. those, right? Like that that's the radical, it's not to try and make everybody comfortable, it's to actually right. abandon those, those privileges right. that they have, um, which he called white skin right. privileges, um, but now it's called has been converted into like white quote privilege. unquote white privilege, which actually is a completely different thing than what he was talking about. He was just talking about mm-hmm. like, you know, some people get better jobs right. and that there were ways in which people were and yeah, like and that it but it was not all in the service of everybody like trying to get a better job. Um Taylor, what do you think is there do you think that this stuff is still relevant now? I, mean, I think it's like, you know, I don't think it's like a I don't think it's a slam dunk question, yes or no. Yeah. I was really glad you introduced us to this magazine that they were putting out because I think it's such a fascinating project I mean I was looking through the other issues and you know they covered like arts and culture and politics and all thinking about you know what they called like this intellectual center for people seeking to abolish the white race like that's such a different and radical conception than what I think white fragility is trying to do even though there's rhetorical overlap what I liked about this particular essay is that and the general project is that White fragility, the point of white fragility and that sort of like um, very introspective politics that's being put out right now as a badge of like sensitive whiteness is extremely like self-involved and in a way actually continues Mm -hmm. to reify whiteness. Yeah. Whereas I think this is like, if you look at yourself, you need to destroy (laughs) yourself. You need to distance yourself from like all of the stuff that white supremacy has taught you. You know, and so that that to me is like it's such a different. Why, project, why do you think actually. why do you, why do you think I white really fragility is reifying whiteness? Because I think like it creates this sort of like circle where you're constantly mm-hmm. looking inside yourself at like what it means to be white, and you know, and you know, kind of processing your white guilt, your white tears, et cetera, et cetera. Like you know, you need to be the kind of white person who has these conversations yeah. with other white people, et cetera, et cetera. So. All of that is based on like a continual reproduction mm-hmm. of whiteness, just like a but right. a sensitive right. look at that, you know. So to me, I don't. I think like that yeah. is a dead end, and I think this is trying to lead to something yeah. more liberatory. Yeah, the decision. But what I mean, do you guys think? One of the last conversation I had with Noel was, you know, I put this on a tweet about this earlier, but um, he was saying that look, uh, the whiteness studies has changed in the sense that now. The point of it seems to be, and you know, this is more broadly about "quote unquote" identity politics. Although, in his defense, he felt like some of the lefties' crankiness about identity politics was like really overblown. He didn't really understand it in the same way that Mike Davis yeah. said, right? Which is that there's I a type agree. of old Trotskyist who spends all day really mad about identity politics, and you know, <laughs> in some ways, has like become a revanchist yeah. in that sort of way. So, yeah. uh, but Noel was saying, look, if all you do is talk about whiteness and race all the time without discuss and as a spiritual condition, and you talk about mm-hmm. it as like this thing that's in the air and you ignore everything else, then you actually are reifying yeah. it in a lot of ways. And he's, the quote that he said to me, which will always stick in my head, was that, you know, right now they, they are constantly reminding people that they're white. And my project was to get people mm-hmm. to forget they were white, right? And that yeah. is different. And, and look, the, the thing that Andy put out, I think, is a is a crucial distinction, which is that the race trader project and that you know the Sojourner Truth project, which Noel was involved in in the '60s, were both designed to get white people to rise up with black coworkers against management. Right, like that mm-hmm. there was a common enemy be- between them, and now there isn't that talk. Right, it is to get it is just to get people to yeah. relate to each other 
on better on interpersonal terms. So I think the way to put it is just to think about it. Just kind of put yourself in the shoes of this imaginary reader of white fragility. At the end of reading white fragility, do they think they are? Do they feel more like a white person than before they read white fragility? And I think they do. Yeah, exactly. They think like I am inescapably a white person. I am a white person even when I'm sleeping. Exactly. You know, like yeah. I have white dreams. I have white thoughts, and that's kind of the message of the book. Um, whereas I don't. I don't know, if, but I don't know if, do you really think forgetting is uh, uh, an, an, an admirable political goal, Joel, uh, Jay, in terms of what Noel was saying? Like, well, I, yeah, I mean, look, it sounds a lot yeah, like colorblindness, exactly. right? But I don't think that that's what he meant. I think what he meant was essentially that um, if you can basically forget that you are given these privileges and you can either... Uh, you can either feel however you want. You can feel defensive about them, that you want to defend them at all costs, or you can feel like you feel very guilty about it, right, at all times. Um, that that you should try and abandon them instead, right? That you shouldn't just spend your life holding on to them while feeling yeah. some way about them. And I think that's what he means by forgetting them. Mm-hmm. And then the relevance I think it has to Viet's piece is that I think that I wonder if there is a way in which East Asian privileged people who are upwardly ascendant can fit themselves in this analysis in some sort of way. Yeah. Uh, like, can we also become race traders in a way? And does Viet's claim that we should keep Asian American as a category fall outside of that? Right. And that's something that is, I think, extremely relevant to every immigrant group in the United States right now, because every immigrant group has their version of, of rich East Asian, crazy rich Asian Yes. type of Asians. And those people are invariably the speakers for that entire group, right? Um, mm-hmm. And that is certainly true within our our quote-unquote community. So, uh, entertainment, what do you think? Is there a version of race trader dumb that, that, that East Asian, <laughs> upperly ascendant people can do? Yeah, I was thinking about it because there's another essay in which your friend Noel has this wonderful anecdote about how he's on a bus of workers and there's a white guy with long hair running to try to catch the bus. And the bus driver keeps going and says, jokingly to whoever can hear, like, oh, I would have stopped if he had had short hair. Yeah. And Noel says, like, oh, that countercultural moment of hippies was a time when, like, some white people were distancing, distancing, distancing themselves from whiteness, like, essentially through, like, the markers of, like, countercultural life. And so I was actually thinking about, like, what does that mean for Asian Americans, right? And I think, like, we've talked here about, like, the the kind of, like, stereotypical distancing in the other way where you say, like, oh, I can't believe I was, like, mistaken for a delivery person. Or I can't believe I was mistaken for, like, when I was a lawyer, like, Mm. an interpreter in court or whatever. But, you know, I think, like, yeah, I think, like are trying to detach ourselves from whatever like we think like our class bona fides are is is essential i just i don't know exactly what that looks like you know what the equivalent of the the hippies long hair is but it to me that was like a useful like yeah. thought experiment you know moving forward we got our handbooks <laughs> you know <laughs> and you can dress like, and you can dress like chinese <laughs> delivery yeah cook, and you can cook, wear like a like skinny outfit. tie <laughs> Like he's in in the mood for love. Yeah. <laughs> that. That'd be great. What? Right. Uh, yeah. yeah what, uh, what exactly? I guess for both of you, what exactly is being ab- abolished or betrayed in your conception of race trader here for Asian Americans? Because you're not talking about abandoning being Asian as such, right? You're talking about a particular right. Um, I don't know. Like, what? What exactly do you think needs to be abandoned? Well, I think that the first thing that needs to be abandoned is general representation and diversity politics, right? Where uh, Asian Americans leverage social justice movements to try and get themselves into higher positions in elite institutions. Um, That would be the first thing that I would say. Um, And I think that that's difficult because, you know, people need jobs and it's not like Asian Americans are overrepresented in uh, a lot of places, even if they're overrepresented in elite institutions and elite colleges, like they're not overrepresented in in media, they're not overrepresented in, you know, the top ranks of the banks on Wall Street, for example. And so I understand when they when people are like, well, why don't we just make this even first before we, you know, abandon this sort of stuff and try and 
accumulate capital to use to X, Y, and Z, which, you know, never happens, right? The, um, <laughs> but I think that that would have to be the first thing where, you know, like there would have to be a real move away from diversity politics. And then I think the second thing that would have to happen is something like the International Hotel, which is, you know, a way of, that's why it was frustrating to me that Viet didn't mention it, which is that, you know, we can go and organize people we can go and work with people in poor communities that might feel some affinity towards us because of our shared Asian American heritage, which, you know, whether we want to deny it or not is real. But uh, I think that would be a good first step. I've, I've been thinking about this for the past month or so and um, trying to figure out the answer to Tammy's question is what this yeah. would look like. And I think that would be it. Right. So and it'd be like you and me going into like, uh, you know, really poor East Asian communities and not East Asian community, I'm sorry, poor quote unquote Asian refugee communities, let's say in, in Oakland, or, uh, I don't know where they are around yeah, Philly, but South I'm sure Philly, there's yeah. like, yeah, yes. Um, and you know, I don't know, doing something as simple as like helping those kids become better debaters <laughs> or something like that. Right. And that that is like the center of our political <laughs> action and that we, that we're conscious of that. And it's not about trying to right. get us better yeah, yeah. jobs. Um, but that's, a lot of people do that, by the way, right now. <laughs> you know, there are a lot of Asian American organizers who are screaming right now because they're like, that's what I do, you know? Which, and I acknowledge that that's what they do. But that's not the center of the conversation right now, and that, I think, yeah. is a problem. Like, do you think there's other steps that people can do to become like Asian American race traders? I think you're saying class trader, right? <laughs> or do you think class it's class trader? Yeah, yeah. Uh, class trader in, in, in that sense, but also race trader in the sense that, like, I think that we have to understand that the conception of Asian American, yeah. like as a model minority conception. And this is something that Viet also yeah. talks about. It's like, we, like we got to just stop caring about it. And we have to understand that when we like 99% of the things that are said about against the Asian American model minority myth are used to actually uphold the Asian American <laughs> model minority myth. Like, don't blame you know? us. We're so good it's at like, that. Right. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. It's like, I reject the model minority myth, but I would like a better job at the Washington Post. You know, like, that's like, it's like the same fucking thing. Like, you can't, it's not the same, you know, like, it's, that's not an abandonment of the model minority myth. You just want to be a modeler yeah. of minority. Um, that, 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 that's my idea. I, I, I'm curious sense. to think what you think. I think the only, the thing I might add on to that is part of the thing that the model minority myth also is trying to get away from is the perpetual foreigner thing, right? So, like, I think also closing the distance between us and new immigrants or people who are not diasporic is part of that yeah. project as well. So, And that overlaps geographically with what you're talking about. So, for instance, if you think about a group like CAV in New York Community Against Anti-Asian Violence, which is a longtime community organizing group that has been located in Chinatown, like, their project for housing and worker and racial justice is to feel no shame around the fact that mm. you can't speak English, to feel no shame around the fact that you can't pay rent, right? Mm. And to have people of the diaspora and people who have educational and social and financial resources to be in struggle yeah. with those people. So, so yeah, I think like in addition to what you're saying about crossing crass and geographic lines, I would say to also cross lines of like, language and culture and to feel nothing about the fact that on the street someone's going to be like oh that's like a chink <laughs> who can't speak english and to be like okay so what that's it that's interesting because i think uh, you know we've kind of hinted at this over our many episodes that i think all of us have gone through this trajectory i know i have of being like an asian american to kind of be more interested in asians and asia or people who go back and forth than in trying to assimilate and uh, I don't know exactly, I don't know if you guys have felt the same way, uh, if it's just sort of like getting bored with America, or, you know, you, tra you, tra you travel to Asia, <laughs> and you're like, this is actually really interesting and exciting. I think when I was a kid, I honestly just didn't have the language or life experiences to understand yeah. where these Asian immigrants, you know, what their reference points were. But the ones I kind of, kind of got more of a sense of that, that became a lot more interesting to me than staying inside sort of mm. Asian American circles where you talk about, you know, crazy rich Asians and boba. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah. it, there is a boredom to that, I agree. But I also <laughs> think there's a danger in uh, this sort of gestural diasporic nationalism that happens where, like, especially right. among Koreans right now, where I'm just like, guys, come on, you know? 
enough with the fucking <laughs> yeah. how great Korea sure, shit sure. is. Tammy, you and I work in the media, right? And Andy, I think this is also true in the academy right now, so I don't mean to exclude you from this conversation. But uh, along these idea that there is a type of politics that is asking simply for a seat at the table, right? Or a seat mm-hmm. at the rich table, which is, I think, a more reasonable way to say it, or a seat at the elite table. Um, and there are large pushes in all these industries right now, especially in media, to try and diversify journalists, try and diversify editorial boards, stuff like that, mm-hmm. right? Um, do, you, do you think this is co-option of the movement on the streets? <laughs> like, do you think, like, are you, like, sympathetic with it? Do you think it's, do you think it's praxis? <laughs> or, or do I it... think it's praxis? That's funny. Um, I don't, I don't think it's co-optation because if we think that what we're doing to try to get... Uh, people, jobs, and elite institutions is actually meaningful to the struggle against police violence that's fairly delusional. But do I think it's something that can be inspired by the same feeling of like aggrievement and examination of white supremacy? Yes. Okay. But do you think that- And I support worker movements. So I, you know, I think like, I consider white collar workers workers and I have, you know, am- have been very involved in journalism organizing. So it's something that I strongly believe in. And I think that changes can be made. I mean, is it the most important, you know, is it the core of revolutionary change in our society? I don't think so. But I think it can change lives in the spaces where it happens. Okay. Andy? So what? There's a lot of this in the academy too, right? Which is diversity and hiring diversity, yeah. the way in which uh, applicants of different backgrounds are treated by tenure yeah. boards for I mean, example. the timing the, like, it seems like they, the media timing is uh, you know a lot more what's the word reactive responsive like are you talking about the stuff that's happened yeah. the last month or so in terms of the like, people stepping sure. down yeah because um, like in ac- yeah. academia is just so much slower we might see like a response in five years from now uh is that a co-optation <laughs> I, yeah I, I think i agree with tammy it's like it's not we shouldn't necessarily attribute to it nefarious intentions but it is um, certainly of a different degree of like what people are actually asking for. Oh, sure. But do you think that co-option was like, it's like necessarily needs the nefarious intentions behind it? Um, no, I mean, it could honestly just be like management's way of getting rid of all the people yelling at them all the time. Right. And, and just kind of, yeah. it's not so much hiring practice and academia would be more like <laughs> issuing statements. And there was a, you know, for instance, there was like a McSweeney's article. That's pretty funny. That was parodying like the sort of email that all of us got from our university about rethinking diversity within our university and talking about like the five black professors we have and the and how much we like care so much about our black students that we follow them around and put them on all of our brochures, right? Like, <laughs> um, <laughs> but that I mean that which is to say that there's a lot of rhetoric about caring about diversity and inclusion inclusiveness, but in substance, you know, there's mm-hmm. a, there's a lot left to be. To be done, but the solution by most administrators is just to write the email. Okay, well, all right. Mm-hmm. So there's all this high-profile stuff that people are laughing about. Like, for example, in Texas, the Realtors Association right. said they're no longer going to use master bedroom, right? Like, they're going to yeah. get rid of that term. And in Hollywood, the, <laughs> they're basically the you know voice actors said that uh, they're not going to have POC characters being voiced by white yeah. actors anymore, and everyone's yeah. making fun that, of this. I have online, another example. Right? My brother-in-law is a programmer. He said apparently in like in coding or whatever, there's language of calling something like a master and a slave within within coding. Oh, so they're getting yeah. rid of that. Which oh. well, a slave is uh, you know a slave is That's a little more a intense. Thing. But it begs the question of like where does, <laughs> but, an, where does any of this master stuff come from? You know, like. Yeah, yeah, that's true. It's true. So, like, but like, it, so that stuff has all been lambasted online as being mm. co-option, right? Mm. Like, it's been like, you know, this is appeasement and it's silly. But like, do you think that uh, do you think that this media stuff is actually closer to that than it is to like the radical demands that are on the street? That's what I'm trying to figure out, right? Like, which is like, where does this fall on the spectrum of between appeasement and and actual demands that are being made? Yeah, uh, and through those processes. Is that going to be a co-option, especially given that the media, of course, has like a huge bullhorn, maybe like the biggest bullhorn, yeah. and that if all they're doing is screaming about diversity within their workplaces, like does that actually take away from the movement on the streets? 
I don't, I don't know if it take, I don't, I don't think so. Again, I mean, I, I think if, if journalists are thinking that this is like a direct extension and that there's, you know, responding to the movement by hiring a few more black managers, I don't, I think that's fairly unrealistic and hopefully people aren't thinking that way. I mean, yeah, I'm curious to get your thoughts, Jay, but I guess my feeling is, first of all, if you have, you need to have a union at your workplace. And if you think that just by getting like HR to issue a letter and making it more easy for you to make race complaints, then that's stupid. And you need to, you need to organize with your coworkers. Cause the entire point of this is like, we need to have safe workplaces where people can speak up about shit that's going down. And the only way you can do that is if you actually have a structure where you're not going to be fired for doing so. Yeah. So uh, I guess my point is like, if, what's happening on the streets leads people to examine what's going on in each part of their lives. And then they make an effort to organize structurally in response to that in a way that, you know, encourages and supports other coworkers. I think that's, I think that's meaningful. I don't think that's co-optation. I think it's something that's happening in a parallel space. But if you're feeling satisfied with yourself because you got your manager to say something nice on Twitter, then you need to go further. Yeah, that's probably fair. Um, that's a much more fair assessment. Look, I think that we have to distinguish between what happened with the Tom Cotton op-ed and, you know, having James Bennett uh, resign. Mm-hmm. James Bennett being the editor of the op-ed pages um, and pushes for more diversity in journalism, right? Because they're not exactly the same thing. Mm-hmm. The latter of it, I do think, is along the same spectrum as, uh, you know, having the POC characters being voiced by POC actors, right? Where mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. end demand is to not change the structures or the management or the, right. uh, or even the ownership of any of these places. It's literally just to get more people jobs. And I think that that stuff, while I feel very sympathetic to it as somebody who from the ages of 22 to 30 couldn't get anything published in journalism, right? <laughs> um, and seeing all these scrubs getting published ahead of me um, and knowing that my <laughs> racial identity probably had something to do with it, right? Like nobody, there's no Asian dude writers out there really, you know, like uh, who are doing journalism. There's like six of us, right? So um, I feel sympathetic towards it, but I do think that it is, it does end up distracting from what is happening on the streets and what is happening at these protests. It does distract from the minimal demand, which I think is to defund yeah. police, um, mm. And it does turn everything back into a question of how do we reform all these institutions? And look, the, the, these elite news institutions are much less vital to, and much, people feel much less sympathetic towards them than, than they do the police, for example, right? Like mm-hmm. the types of reforms that are being asked for are very mm-hmm. easy to fulfill. Oh, I and I think that by taking a, you just have to hire five people, literally five people. And then, you know, like the thing, like they'll, they'll, like it'll end. And I do think that making an easy demand right now that doesn't ask any management to change or any sort of anything except for some people to get better jobs, I do think is like ends up, I don't like distraction is such a weird word and I generally don't believe in distractions, but I do think that it is sucking up a ton of oxygen in a way that I think if you are skeptical about the, the, um, about the voice actor thing in cartoons and then you're making demands that the Washington Post, for example, change its, uh, the way that it, it, or, you know, has more minority journalists there. Like you're closer to that than you are to like, uh, demand to defund the police. Does that make sense? Yeah, I hear you. I just feel like they're exist. They exist in such different spheres. Like no one I'm interviewing about black lives matter or whatever knows what's going on at the times or cares. No, I agree with that. I agree with that. And then, yeah, but, and then, so I don't, I don't know. Do you, is it just is it just your feeling that like journalists are spending too much time thinking about themselves and therefore the cover their coverage of the movement is not going is not what it should be? No, no, I don't think that. But I do think that uh, I do think that co option happens in a lot of ways, and I think that one of the ways in which the, it happens is that the upper you know like sort of the the class of people who are upwardly mobile use take revolutionary action and they use mm-hmm. it to better their personal yeah. situations, right? Like this happens all the time sure, across yeah. the world. But, um, but, you know, Egypt, Tahrir, yeah. everywhere around the world when these sorts of things happen. And so 
I'm wondering if the media part of this is actually that manifestation of it, whether it is, and like, this has nothing to do with the, the like, I, I agree that labor unions matter and that white collar workers are also workers. And so I am just saying the mm-hmm. timing of this, like, right. should we, should we take it that seriously, you know, and is it mm-hmm. just diversity politics disguised as radical politics? Right. And like, does that take away from right. the actual radical politics that are being invent that are being put out there? And if mm-hmm. you keep all corporate structures intact and you say that people just need to treat each other better and hire more people of color, then you actually are just doing what Robin D'Angelo is saying that you should do in mm-hmm. white fragility, right. right? So you can bash right. white fragility all you want, but if that if your demand is that you want to be hired into mainstream yeah. journalism, then then you are buying into the Robin D'Angelo but infrastructure. Are these mutually exclusive though? I guess is the question. Like, and is there, you, you talk about how this is self-interested, but do you not buy the argument that if you did have more, you know, for instance, black journalists covering Black Lives Matter, that would make a difference to the coverage? You don't yeah, I don't believe okay. that at all. And I used to believe that. Like five years ago, I really did believe that, oh. but I don't believe that at mm-hmm. all. Because the editorial, the people editing them are still going to be. And I also just don't, you know, like the types of people that they would hire are people who are going to right. be closer to the editorial board right. sensibilities. You know what I mean? Yeah. So like, um, like there's, there's no, like you, you can hire all sorts of Asian people. And if you can pick all the ones yeah. that you want to pick, that'll sure, just say sure. what you want. You know, there's plenty of them. There's plenty of them yeah. out there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and um, you know, like that's. I don't think it. Yeah. I don't think it will change anything. And um, I know that yeah. that's like a shitty thing to say, but I don't. I don't. I think it will change the lives of the people who are the journalists <laughs> who are picked. And um, I don't think that yeah. it will meaningfully yeah. change coverage. And I don't think that something like the New York Times, which is read by a very specific group of people. Right. Like it's actually better for them to read white fragility because white fragility is actually more <laughs> radical than, than anything they're going to read in the New York, <laughs> New York Times, <laughs> I think, you know, uh, maybe I'm wrong, but like, that's how I, you know, like, I don't think that, that these sorts of small, like the, the if anything, it's a small yeah. correction. Right. You can have Trojan horses. I get that. That take advantage of these situations and bring in a more radical perspective, but there's always, you know, we don't have to name names, but... But that'll get edited out, you know? Like, it will get edited yeah. out. Like I mean, I think if there are white-collar people out there who are and, like, elite people who are looking at the movement on the streets and, and participating in it, too, and thinking, like, how do I translate this in my life? And if they see an opening to do that in their workplace, I think that's a good thing. And I think... But I, yeah, yeah, yeah I, I totally yeah, yeah. get what you're saying, that there's, like, super... There's a superficial version of that, and then there's a real version of that, which is if you're trying to replicate defund the police in your life, that means like seizing the means of production. Yeah. That means seizing control. And that's different than having a freaking HR letter. So the thing that I don't want to confuse here is, you know, union efforts that are happening at magazines and at publications across media to try and get better contract terms that are timed in some ways with this. And there might be a coincidence. It might not be like I support all of those. What I'm really talking about is this sort of, Twitter-bound grievance that I think is put out by a lot of people that's saying, like, you know, like, I went through X and these places have to reform in ways to make mm-hmm. me comfortable that have nothing to do with my fellow coworkers, right? So, for example, it's, like, about that guy yeah. who was tweeting, and he's not even, he doesn't even work at the Times, right? He's a, he's a contractor in the same way that I am. I think maybe even, like, a level lower than I am. Uh, not, not, not to like level shame, but, <laughs> OJ. but, uh, you know, talking about Brett Stevens and how Brett Stevens is this huge problem and that all of his quote unquote colleagues are bothered by it. Like, I, I don't understand that sort of stuff, you know, like what, uh, yeah. it seems to be counterproductive towards what the union is trying to do. Right. Cause like it or not, Brett Stevens is a union, like as a news guild member, but outside of that, it's just like, yeah. Why do you feel like personal grievance time is is needed during this time? Do you know what I mean? Like, why is it about you and yeah. how you're treated? And then why is it like posted as being heroic that you're like going out on a limb and saying all of this? Like, that's the stuff that specifically is annoying to me. I, I, like, they, like, are, yes. but Tammy, like, as somebody who's doing a lot of this, not, not a lot of this, but who has been labor organizing in the past, like, is my distinction like a false one? Like, am I am I allowed to feel this way? And um, still support. (laughs) (laughs) I want to know because. Yes, I personally give you permission. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah, I think you are pointing out something that's real, which is that 
people in elite spaces are looking at these protests and thinking like, what does this mean in my life? And there are two ways to go about that. So one is, you know, this kind of like microaggressions driven, like, you know, diversity count, like how can I do better? How can I feel more comfortable peace? And then there's a second way, which is how do I build power with colleagues? How do we protect the weakest among us? How do we take control from editors and administrators? And I think the latter route is the route that most would clearly parallel what the demands are on the street, which is to defund and to, to you know, unstructure, dismantle. And the former is is something something quite superficial and, you know, it can be erased as quickly as it occurs also. So, yeah, um, yeah I, you know, I, I want to shout out, like, this Just Cause campaign that the News Guild has, of New York has been doing, which is that to try to make sure that all, you know, newspaper workers who have a union can't get fired for just any old reason, that there has to be a just cause for termination. That's that language. And there was a work stoppage this week at The New Yorker, which you and I both used to work at. And this is like an ultimate elite space, right? This isn't necessarily connected to anything on the streets, but these are people who are trying to practice something in their own lives. And I I applaud that. Thank you for listening um, to our show. Uh, our editor is James Nicholson, um, and uh, I don't. Do we have other, any other credits? <laughs> oh, you can find our you can find our newsletter on time to say goodbye pod uh, or I, I don't even know what the URL is, which is a good reason we should change it. Um, and uh, you, TTSG pod on Twitter, and you can please if you like this podcast, please subscribe. Uh, it's free. And uh, that's all we ask from you is to join our email list so that you can get all these podcasts and whatever Tammy, Andy, and I decide to write for our newsletter as well. Um, And uh, we will see you next time. Il maestro Candrelli qui, tutti i miei amici.